Father, we pray that as we come and as we study this passage before us today, that you bless our time, that Lord, that you would speak through your word, that you would work despite me, despite my frailties, Lord, that you would accomplish what you want to accomplish through your word, which is inherently strong, inherently powerful, and inherently true. May your truth sanctify us this day, we pray. Amen. Amen. So last time, last time as we, um, as we came to James 1, we were dealing with the, uh, the beginning of this section on hearing and doing the word. So we were looking from verse 19 and following. And the most important thing for us to realize with regards to context as we press on is simply this, that when it said, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, while that sounds like a lovely sentiment and one that we can wholeheartedly say amen to in any context, in this context it was speaking about that with regards to the scripture that we should be quick to hear from Scripture and slow to speak in response, more to the point, slow to anger, um, as we respond to it, pointing out our frailties and infirmities, exposing our sinfulness. And so, it ended in that section, put away all filthiness. Filthiness is not a general statement. It is speaking specifically to what it is when we react to the Word of God by resisting it, that is filthy, and the rampant wickedness, and rather, instead of that rejection of God's word, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. If we're going to be sanctified, if we're going to be anything more than a bunch of Christians playing church, if we're going to actually become like Jesus more and more, then what we need to do is we need to receive meekly humility, the word of God, and not resist it. And then as we ended last time, we took a brief look ahead to where we are today, and we emphasized the importance that though we must be quick to hear the word, and though we must be quick to, um, to hear what God's saying and to receive the truth of God's word and say, yes, I accept that, I believe that, equally we're then warned in verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If we, and this is just a pick up where we finally left off last time as we press on to the next verse, if we are those Christians who come and hear sermons and, and then, you know, file in, file out, church is, is sort of almost like a, a cinema combined perhaps with a bit of a social club, then we're missing the point completely. That we are not merely to be people who hear God's word, who get good teaching and go, oh, that's great, and we gorge ourselves on God's word and we pride ourselves on how we receive God's word. And, uh, and then we don't do God's word. If we do that, then we're deceiving ourselves. We're kidding ourselves that we're progressing. We're kidding ourselves that we're maturing. And we're kidding ourselves that we're sanctifying. That's what deceiving means. It means that, that you think something's happening, but something's not. Like the, like the magician moving the cups. Which, keep your eye on the one where the ball is, moving them around, yes? It, it's deceit. They're deceiving you. And here the irony is that we are deceiving ourselves. That we think that because we hear God's word, because we, we receive God's word, we say, I believe God's word. I reject that heresy over there. We go to a church that teaches the Bible. We embrace what the Bible says. We believe what it says and we embrace it. Fantastic. We've won the victory. We're the good people. We're the great Christians. And we're being sanctified. No, you're not. You are simultaneously moving the cups with the ball and you're simultaneously you've forgotten which cup you put it in and you're deceiving yourself. We have to be people who live out the word as well. The explanation of this principle is given to us in verse 23. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, that's what's being described, then he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. So, um, well, let's read through the end of, before we break it down, let's read through to the end of the analogy. For he, he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. In other words, the idea is simply this, that you, you come to church on a Sunday and you hear the Bible, you hear the Word of God, and then you go away and you say, that's a brilliant, I love, I love that, what a great truth. And then you go away and you don't live it. You don't let it impact your life. And then you are like someone who has simply forgotten what they look like. The, the idea here of um, natural face and mirror needed a little bit of unpacking here. Firstly, with regards to a mirror. Today, if you look in a mirror you will see a near-perfect representation of what you look like, as shocking as that may be. The mirror simply reflects what is seen. In the ancient world, that wasn't the case. In the, in the ancient world, um, mirrors weren't perfect. And the idea with the natural man is that an imperfect person is looking into an imperfect mirror, and so he has to look intently. Now, the analogy here... Um, is, is simply this, that when he looks, he sees in that mirror. Now, I guess in a sense, the mirror here is representing what the Word of God is doing. The danger is, if we think of the mirror being purely you know, identical to the Word of God, then the imperfections of a mirror in the ancient world somehow becomes problematic. The idea here is simply that what we see from the Word of God is always going to be imperfect. Not because the Word is flawed in any way, but because we are. That's why you can read a Bible passage one year and say, oh man, I, I love that passage, I really understand that passage. And then you read it again the next year, and you're like, man, I never saw that. And then the next year, and so on and so forth. The Word of God is just this bottomless pit it's the book of life that keeps on giving. And so we see things we hadn't previously seen. We wrestle with things we hadn't previously wrestled with. And so it's our imperfections in being able to see um, what God is saying that makes the analogy of an imperfect mirror so perfect. But the emphasis here is more on the fact that it is his natural face. Natural face, you know... What on earth does that mean, natural face, as opposed to what, your, your plastic surgeon face? Do you know, I, I don't know what he's saying here. No, no, what he's saying here is that the natural face is natural in the sense of fleshy, in the sense of imperfect. In other words, you're seeing, when you see a reflection, you're seeing your spots, your pimples, the bits that don't look quite right, the, the scars, the, you know, the things you don't like about yourself but hopefully your spouse thinks it's cute. That kind of stuff. You're seeing everything in that is there and all of your flaws contained there as well. And the idea is, is that we come to the Word of God and we get to see what we're like. When we preach the Bible here, the goal is not that we go away puffed up saying, oh man, I just I love the Bible, I've gorged on it today, I've... I feel satisfied and full and really quite proud of myself that I don't go to one of those other churches that doesn't teach the word quite like we do. And, and thus we're done. And in doing so, what's happening is we're not seeing what the word is saying about our imperfections. One of the things that I'm really big on in preaching here is, is that we don't have to have an application in every text. You know, so many churches, application has taken over to the point that each sermon has to be, you know, designed to, to you know, topically to, to apply, you know, the seven steps to this in seven sermons and so on and so forth. But, and, and the reason that I, I don't feel the need to do that is because I passionately believe that when we behold God in the scriptures, when we see who he is, we are changed. 
And the way in which that works is that as we behold God, the Father of lights, our imperfections become ever clearer. When we see the character of God, perfect and flawless, our imperfections and our flaws become ever clearer. And the danger that James is warning us of here is that when we look in the mirror and we see those imperfections, the danger is that we look at ourselves and go away and forget what we saw. I remember reading this passage as a kid and being a bit confused and kind of like as a teenager and going, man, this is, this is strange. I mean, who looks in the mirror and forgets what they look like? I mean, I know what I look like, right? So show me a photo, I'll go, yeah, that's me, I know. But what it's saying in the context of natural face is it's saying that, that you, might, you might forget, you know? It's like looking in the mirror um, and seeing some sort of smudge or mark on your face. And you're man, yeah, I've got to wipe that off before I go to work today. I've got, to, I've got to remove that. I've got some dirt or something on my face. And then the second you go away from the mirror, you suddenly forgot that thought's just gone. Some of you can relate to that. I can relate to that. <laughs> you know, your mind just goes, boom, squirrel. There you're off. We're somewhere else. Um, so you forget that that smudge is there. And then you go about the rest of your day completely oblivious to the fact that there's a great big smudge and mark on your face. You just, I, I don't know, I'm just going to go about my life. And everyone's going, smudge, he's got smudge. What's that on your face? You know, and everybody else can see, but we can't because we looked. We were given an opportunity to see that mark. And then we went away and we forgot and we didn't do anything about it. The danger is, is that when we see the imperfections in our hearts, as we look at the glory of God in his word, the danger is is that we then walk away. And once we walk away, we forget. Most of you in that analogy I gave are thinking, well, why don't you just wipe the smudge off when you're there in front of the mirror? Sounds obvious, doesn't it? Maybe after church on a Sunday, we need to just take a little time before we gather and go away, and we just need to repent in our hearts if need be, commit ourselves afresh, Try and take the time after the sermons to pray, to, to make those decisions going forwards. But then they have to be made again and again as we go. To, and we'll talk more about that as the passage goes on. And so that's the danger. The danger is, is that the word of God exposes who we are and that we could be people who, who, you know, though we might in our flesh instinctively react to the word of God and say, I don't want to have to do that. I'm not sure about that. But we say, no, 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 I'm going to hear this and I'm going to receive this and we receive it and then we do nothing. And that's where we've got to go to the next step. In contrast to that picture, he says in verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So, if you want a blessing, if you want, and remember the context of blessing here, we've seen this from earlier on, that uh, in chapter 1, that there are links here to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, that's, that sort of foundational package of Psalms that begins, blessed is the man, and the man described as the Messiah in Psalm 1, and then in Psalm 2 with the king, blessed are those who, who trust in him. The blessed one is Messiah, and those who trust in him are blessed. And it's that kind of context that, well, it's a context for so much, including the Sermon on the Mount to some degree, but also the part of the context here. That if you want to be blessed as you become more Christ-like, if you want to be blessed then this is what needs to happen. You need to be one who looks into the perfect law. Now, can you see there's a couple of things going on here? You're looking into the perfect law. Now, here, it's a reference contextually to God's word. And the word perfect immediately contrasts with the imperfect mirror. 
So in that, here's a guy, isn't that crazy that he'd look in a mirror like really closely, really intently, like he can't quite see because the mirror isn't quite perfect. So he's got to kind of move the mirror around to kind of make sure he can see whatever flaw or imperfection he's looking at. But here with the word of God, it itself is perfect. And so do we want that imperfection in seeing? Do we want to come to God's word and say, God, just reveal what you want me to see in your word. The word itself is perfect. The word itself is perfect. But I think the word perfect here is far more significant in this regard. If you look back, the word perfect was used um, earlier on, right at the beginning of the chapter. So we're kind of doing a bit of an inclusio, a bit of a sandwich here. In verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is what James has been on about from the start. The progressive sanctification. And he says we need to press on so that we're perfect. Well, here we have the law that is perfect. And look what it's called. It's called the law of liberty. The law of liberty. How did James describe the person that was double-minded? Double-souled, literally. He's like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. He's a person that is, that is slave to his own emotions, slave to his own feelings, slave to the circumstances of life. Something blows in, whoosh, he's off. Something comes up, whoosh, he's gone. And he is a slave to these circumstances. And trials comes in, and he can't consider it a joy. And he is... He is constantly bombarded. And so throughout this passage, James has been saying, you're asking for perfection. You're asking to be made whole. You're asking to walk the right way. Do you really want that? Because if you don't, you won't get it. Don't be double-minded. And what he's saying here as he comes to the end is that the law that exposes you, exposes those desires that cause you to be double-minded, exposes the fact that you want a life that is comfortable and cozy, that you don't want to have to take up your cross and follow him. The the, the word of God that exposes that is is not your enemy. You, You want to see this in its most overt form? There are several Bible passages that you could go and read with a loudhailer at the next, you know, L.A. Pride March, and you will see how much hatred comes simply from reading God's Word. And the same could be applied to numerous other circumstances. There's many churches that you could go and just read Bible passages and they would be offended. And so there is this outright hatred that that James has been speaking of as a reaction to God's word, right? But what James has been trying to get us to see is that all of us have this same thing going on on a smaller scale, where God's word is there and it's pointing at our pride and it's pointing at our selfishness. And he's saying, you've got to receive it. You've got to be, be really quick to just say, okay, this is your word, God. Don't like it, but this is your word. And don't try and wrestle your way out of it. Don't be quick to speak. Don't get angry about what God said that you don't like. Receive the word. And then what he's saying, when he talks about the law being a law of liberty, is he's saying that the law is not your enemy. Uncomfortable, wounds of a friend, but not your enemy. Nobody wants to be told that, you know, the, the spiritual equivalent of, you know, it's kind of like this. Let me give you this analogy. I probably shouldn't, but I, should, I will anyway. Let the pieces fall where they may. I don't know if you had this in America, but in England we had, growing up, the expression, you know, the, the, the sort of stereotype of the wife would say, put on a new dress and say, does my bum look big in this? And, and the husband was, oh, no, 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 no. You're not allowed to, to say, right? It's like we take that approach with the Bible. 
God, search my heart. Come on, search my heart, God. Not, not that hard. Not that, not that deeper search. Okay, no, 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 no deeper than that. No, we don't need to go any further. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, we, it's like we're coming to God and saying, show me, God. Show me what needs to change in my heart. Humble me. And James is dealing with this. He's saying, do you really want that? Is, is that actually what you want? Because if you want that, we'll do that. But if you don't really want that, then God's not going to answer the prayer when you ask for that. Because in the Word of God, you see how the whole chapter's fitting together here. The Word of God is exposing our hearts, revealing our sinfulness and selfishness. We've got to receive it and not react. But, but what's going to happen is that the law is going to give us an opportunity to be free from that. To be free from that. To be free from being that wave tossed to and flow by the waves. To be free from, from that kind of, I don't want to hear that reaction from the word of God. To, to be free from this double-mindedness that's going to have us pursuing earthly wisdom rather than heavenly wisdom. That's the thing we need to be free from. One of the most famous verses in the Bible that says a very, very similar thing and is terribly misunderstood is in Romans 8 and chapter one, uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 where Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's just a wonderful statement as it stands, isn't it? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And every Christian who hears that verse in isolation goes, "Hallelujah, I am now free. There's no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus." And we all think that he's talking about our justification, us being saved, past tense. He finished talking about that in chapter 4. He's done. What is he talking about in the context, the end of chapter 7 and in chapter 8? He's talking about the struggle within us. That double-mindedness that James is speaking of. And he says there's now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Guys, the glorious truth of the gospel is not simply that God has paid the price for our sins so that we can be declared righteous. It's that we have the privilege of walking in liberty, in freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from this struggle, victory. God's word gives us that opportunity. But what does it do? It exposes our flaws and frailties. And we instinctively want to react against it. And we've got to be able to receive it. And then receiving it, as he goes on and says again now, we have to do it. You haven't really received the word, James is saying, until you've done it. But the one who looks into the perfect law law of liberty, and perseveres, and perseveres. It's no good to simply be someone who looks into the law, goes through that whole process, resists the, the sinful temptation to, to, to not receive the word, and then, but once that's done, you've got to stand, you've got to persevere. Be no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. So really, James's whole chapter here, the whole book so far, has come full cycle. It's come full cycle. It begins with us going through trials, James confronting us that we aren't as godly as we think, and telling us that what we need to do is to be steadfast in these trials and ask God to use these trials to, to, um, to give to us generously the way of wisdom. We've got to be sure that we want it. We're going to resist it instinctively. We've got to hear it, receive it. But it's only as we do it that we are persevering. Now, I want you to see this. Perfect law, verse 25. Perfect in verse 4. Verse 4 also talks about steadfastness. Verse 25 also talks about persevering. It's that balancing together. So in other words, when we read verse 4 and James says, you need to persevere in these trials, 
James is telling us that that persevering, that steadfastness, looks like obeying the word. That's what it looks like. You don't get to say, hey, I'm persevering through this trial. I'm being steadfast in this trial when you're compromising. You're not being steadfast. Steadfastness is seen in doing the word. And to put that into our context, being steadfast in the midst of trial is not merely coming to church, hearing sermons, listening to sermons, singing songs, and then going away. Persevering in the midst of trials requires more than that. It requires action. It requires doing you know, Isaiah in the evenings, we've been seeing about Hezekiah and how in his trial he turned and repented and he came to the temple of God. But then from that temple, he came out and he did. And that's where James is taking us now. And so the blessing, the blessing of liberty, is one that comes to the person who doesn't merely receive God's word, but then goes on to do it. And then comes the challenge that really ends the chapter and ends this whole train of thought of this section. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religious, uh, religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Right. We've seen the perfection steadfastness sandwich from verse 3, 4 through to verse 25. I believe that verse 26 and verse 27 is essentially a summary of what he has said in this chapter thus far, in many senses. So let's unpack it. If anyone thinks he's religious, religion has become a dirty word in churches. Many Christians will say, oh, I don't, I don't have religion, I have relationship. Hashtag anti-clever. The problem is, is that if you don't have religion, then you don't really have relationship. Relationship with Jesus makes us more religious, not less so. Let's just think about what religion is. Religion is the outworking of faith in acts of service and, and, and um, you know, the, the practical outworking, as he's going to be speaking about here. And so what we need to understand as we come to that, that you cannot, if you're one of those people who says, hey, it's okay, I've got a relationship with Jesus, I'm not going to have to be all religious and blah, blah, blah. I think what sometimes people mean is I'm not going to be religious in the way that you think, and there may be some credibility to that. But what so often it means is that my relationship with Jesus is between me and Jesus. And what that means practically is I have license to compromise my faith and you can't judge me. What it means practically is I'm going to sit away in my own corner and do it my way and I'm the God of my own faith and don't you dare tell me otherwise. And it severs the individual from the corporate nature of church, which is the very thing that the Bible says is necessary for spiritual maturity. So you can't get away from religion. One religious act that we do in the church is baptism. We're going to have one on Sunday and I think that once we're done with it, everybody will agree that we're glad that we have religious acts. That it's helpful, that it's profitable in many different ways. But here in this context the outworking is, is, is far broader than that. So if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart this person's religion is worthless. Right. This sums up really so much of what we've already done. Again, it's one of those Oprah verses, as I spoke about last time, that, you know, you read this verse in isolation and, you know, any secular chat show host will say, oh, yeah, 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 bridle your tongue, that's great advice. Mm, yeah, let me put that in my next edition of, you know, chicken soup for the restroom toilet book, you know, that you read your little, you know, cookie cutter mantra, you know, you know that pseudo-spirituality stuff. They love this kind of stuff. You know, we don't want people who are religious... Let's just bridle our tongues and not be deceivers, you know, that kind of thing. All right, let's see what it's saying in context. The bridling of the tongue parallels the slow to speak in verse 19. Be slow to speak. If you're slow to speak, what are you doing? You're bridling your tongue. That's the same thing. So in other words, yes, I think you should bridle your tongue. Yes, I think we should be slow to speak. 
in a general sense. These are all worthwhile things to, 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 to do. But the passage here, what it's saying is, if you think that you are a religious person, but you don't resist your reaction to, your rejection of, your adjustment of God's word. If, if, if you hear God's word and you go, but, 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 but what about this? And, and surely it can't mean that. And do I have to do this? Then please don't be so deceived, James is saying. You're deceiving your heart if you do not bridle your tongue, but you think you're religion. Uh, but you are religious because this person's religion is worthless, vain, empty. It's of no value. It doesn't accomplish anything. So if you look at verses 26 and 27 as a whole, verse 26 is dealing with the hearing of the word. If you think that you're a religious person but you won't receive the word of God... In other words, if you're one of these people that goes out and does all these kind things and you think you're a nice person, you hear this a lot, don't you, probably in the world. Oh, I'm a good person. I do this and this and I give to charity and I do this and blah, blah, blah and what have you. If you think you're a religious person, but you can't receive the word of God, you can't bridle your tongue, you, you hold back God's word by your resistance to it, your religion is worthless. You can't be a doer for God if you're not already a hearer. But verse 27 is the other side. You can't simply hear alone. You've got to do as well. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. This word pure is going to be one that he will use again. He's talking about the perfection again. As he has, he's talking about trying to get to that point again, as he has. He's exposed us to it from verse 2, the frailties of our faith. And if you want to get there, if you want to lack nothing, if you want your, your religion, your faith to be perfect, this is what it looks like. Religion that is pure and undefiled, uncorrupted before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their, in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Okay. So having in verse 26 dealt with people who would do but reject God's word, and he says your religious deeds are empty and vain and worthless apart from you receiving from God and accepting what he says about you, you you're not, it's not accomplishing anything. He then moves on to those who have received from God but aren't doing, as he was dealing with in the, in the last section of the sandwich that we, we spoke of. And he's broken down what this doing looks like into two categories. The first category is the orphans and widows category. Now, context. He's speaking in the first century to people who are um, the most vulnerable in society. They're the people who are rejected by society, who have no financial um, capabilities of their own that they need help and they need assistance and they're vulnerable. There clearly is more to it than purely their vulnerability because it does fit into the priority that God makes for the family unit. When the widow has lost her husband, she now becomes vulnerable. When the orphans have lost their parents, they become vulnerable. And so it is about serving and loving and providing for the weak in their affliction. But I think there's two dangers to this text as we look at it today. Two dangers, two, two sides of the coin. On the one side of the coin, we can hyper-focus on the words widows and orphans and say, well, we need to, we need to care for um, and, and visit the, the orphans and the widows in their affliction. Visit here doesn't literally mean necessarily, well, it can be part of it, but it doesn't literally mean you know, knock on their door once a week, but it means to meet their needs. It means to, to visit them in, in the sense of providing for them. And we can hyper-focus and say, well, this person, you know, they've been through a lot, you know, their, their parents were in a terrible accident, their, their father died, but their mother's on life support. 
She's technically alive. So technically they're not an orphan. So you know, you can, you can hyper-focus and say, okay, just orphans and widows. That's all that this passage is speaking about. No, 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 no. That would be one mistake to make. I think when we look at this, we have to see that what is being spoken of is is that the outworking and doing of our faith is seen in how we treat those who can't provide for us, who can't help us. Those who, who need help and assistance, those who are vulnerable. And yes, in the sense of vulnerability, we're even talking about like, you know, the Christian cause of the unborn. Absolutely, that's incorporated in this to some degree. But I think also there there are those who go through various trials in life and who suffer various afflictions and who are incredibly needy and who are struggling with life generally. And I am constantly aware that many churches in our sort of type of church, as it were, our tribe, Many are very poor at allowing people to be afflicted. People are quickly criticized for, oh, you think you're the victim sort of thing. You know, you don't deserve anything before God. Here, Calvinism 101, you know? I just, I just don't like that. It doesn't have the heart of God to it. The heart of God is to see widows and orphans and to love and to care. The, prob- the, the problem that... God has is with those who are proud and mighty and say, look at me, look at my strength and look at my wealth and look at this and look at that. I've got so much to offer. I'm so great. That's the kind of one that God has a problem with. And yet in churches, that's so often the ones that we're attracted to. Which is why chapter 2 verse 1 follows on this this in the very next verse where he talks about partiality. And we're going to leave that and come back to that. You know, when we're back in James. But, you know, churches love people who are, who are gifted and who are wealthy and who are charismatic in the sense of, you know, attract people and what have you. And he says, you really want to know that the Bible is making an, an impact on your life? Then be just as concerned for the unemployed person who walks out your door as for the person that works for some big company and earns a fortune. Be, just be, be concerned for the one who can't give back to you and help you and assist you. The one who is, who is always going to... You know, in churches, there are some people that seem to always take, 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 and never give. And our religion, our walk, is so easily assessed in how we deal with people who really, to be frank, are not a blessing. And so I would think that the one danger is is to view widows and orphans too narrowly and not see this breadth of the undesirable and the afflicted. Those who can't give to you financially, those who can't help you so much practically, those who require far more giving than are able to give. It grieves my heart. I've got to be very careful what I say here, but it grieves my heart when more concern is shown for those who who are able to give more and those who are able to do more and accomplish more. Those who do more Practically, the whole point of this with the orphans and widows is that these are people that will drain you financially and practically. That's the test of religion. The second error with regards to orphans and widows is that then having seen a more general approach to it, that we, that we somehow neglect the orphans and widows literally. And we say, we well, yeah, well, orphans and widows, it kind of, you know, the afflicted more generally. And, and we don't care about those who practically need help. And, and I think that, that there is a danger in going too general here to the point that we can say, yeah, we've got, vid- we got, we got to remember the afflicted. Okay, that's the gist of the passage. Okay, I'm done with that. That's great. I understand that. And then we walk away from this situation and we're exactly... As you walk away from this sermon, you think, okay, I got that, I'm afflicted, blah, 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 and you brush it aside a little bit, and you walk away, 
You're that person who's looked in a mirror and forgotten what you look like. In our church, we need to make sure that those who are afflicted, that those who are struggling, financially, mentally, with regards to health, that we are practically there for them. That's not my job as pastor. In England, I'm not saying, sorry, let me correct that. It's not only my job as pastor. In England, and I know you have it over here as well to some degree, to a lesser degree, there is a term given for the pastor. He's often called the minister. I hate that because it's completely unbiblical. I'm actually the equipper who equips the saints for the work of ministry. It's not solely my responsibility to make sure that people don't fall through the cracks. It is equally all of our responsibility to make sure that the afflicted, to those who are in need, are looked after. And sometimes we can't know. Sometimes it's very hard to tell. We don't know if people are afflicted unless they say that they're afflicted. We don't know that people need help unless they say they need help. But that needs to be something that we do. So the second half of this, of what it looks like when we are not just hearers but doers, to what this, this outworking of our faith looks like, on the one hand it is doing these things, but on the other hand, with regards to, uh, separate from others, with regards to ourselves, we need to keep our, oneself unstained from the world. It's very, very, very simple. To understand, but very, very, very hard to do. Imagine that you're walking through puddles of mud, and you're wearing on you're wearing a, your best suit. You're not going to run through it gleefully, like a small child in his Wellington boots. Do you have Wellington boots over here? We have wellies back in England, but yeah. You know, running through the muddy puddles and jumping and splashing and everything going everywhere. If you're trying to walk through muddy puddles and you've got your best suit on, you're going to walk very carefully and very gingerly because you know that the more movement that you make, the chances of those little droplets coming up, landing on your shoes, going onto your clothes... The last thing he would do is just, just to run through it carelessly. That's what it's being said here. You need to keep yourself unstained from the world. We live in a world that is not only sinful but glorifies sin. It is not only godless but it hates God. And we have to, we have to stick out like a sore thumb. You cannot blend into this world without being a compromiser. You simply can't. Because everything that we stand for, they hate. And the things that we hate, they love. And the world, obviously the degree to the corruption of the world, varies in location to location, time to time. But in our time right now, we need to learn to walk in a way that we don't get stained by the world. And to do that, we are going to have to check ourselves. Am I picking up some of the kind of vibes from the world? Am I starting to think like they think? Prioritize what they prioritize? We're seeing this so much right now in the church where the church is embracing things like critical race theory and, and, and what have you. And, and the thing that fuels all of this is this constant desire to say, well, what can we learn from the world? What can we pick up? We don't want to be opposed to them for the sake of it. We don't want to look like bigots and behemoths and, and, and or behemoths, you guys say, don't you? Just kind of, you know, we don't want to see like something from yesteryear. We, don't, we, 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 want to kind of in, we want to work with them as much as we can. And it seems to me like the church's biggest concern right now is to make sure that the world still likes them a little bit. We're not going to compromise on this and this and this, but will you like us anyway? Maybe I could drop this little thing here. Maybe I take this on, and maybe you'd like me a little bit more. Can I put some makeup on for you, world? 
Can I make myself more attractive to you, world? This is the concern of the church. That shouldn't be the concern of the church. The church should be concerned by this. Is the world staining me? Am I being corrupted by the world around me? Is it staining me? So we want to make sure our output is good, widows and orphans, those afflicted. But we need to make sure our input is good in so far as we don't allow ourselves to be stained by the world, to think like they think, to become as they are. And so, as we come to the end of chapter 1, what has James taught us? He's taught us this. Life's tough. Uncomfortable, unpleasant. Various afflictions and trials. When they come, we're to consider those things joyfully because God is going to use them to bring about his work of sanctification in our hearts. And when those trials come... There's going to be within us a resistance. There's going to be something within us that's going to want to avoid the trials, to, to not learn our lessons, to not submit, because we don't like being exposed. We don't like hearing from God much that we claim that we do. We, we need to be quick to hear and receive God's word and not to simply resist it. We've got to learn, make sure that we are walking the right way. And for us, the right way of walking... The way that is God's way is to hear his word, to receive it, to not resist it, to not resist how he's using trials in our lives, to embrace the sovereignty of God, to embrace the word of God, and to make sure that from that place we are being changed, that we're allowing God to change us through his word so that our output is good and our input is pure. And it saddens me when I see Christians who won't hear from God's word. It saddens me when there are Christians and, and here's what God's word says. Oh, well, I'm not so sure about that and what about this and then it's been more nuanced and blah, blah, blah. And they won't hear. And it saddens me when people do hear and they gorge themselves on the word and yet they don't do anything. They don't care for the afflicted. They only care for themselves and feeding themselves on the Bible and getting fatter and fatter on the word without assisting and loving those around them. And it saddens me when we allow the world to impact us to such a degree and we take our cues from the world and we care about what the world thinks always responding to trying to, to make them understand us better. And they understand us fine. They just don't like us. But you know what saddens me most of all? Saddens me more than all of those things is that every little piece of that, the resistance to God's word, the not caring for the afflicted, and the allowing the world, the world to impact us, Every last bit of that is in me to some degree. That's what saddens me the most. We, all of us, are not impacted by this. Every single one of us knows what it is to have the Bible read and preached and say, I don't want to hear that. We know that feeling in our hearts. And every one of us knows how it is to brush aside the afflicted, to consider people more trouble than they're worth, to try and think for the long term, you know, and prioritize people over other people and what have you, and then every single one of us knows that desire in our hearts to be loved and accepted by those around us and to not put our jobs at risk and not to lose our, put our friendships at risk. We all know this. So let's encourage one another. Let's encourage one another to stand firm, to persevere, to be steadfast. In the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties, let's encourage one another corporately 
to walk together in God's way, in heavenly wisdom, in pure religion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge of the book of James. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't hear this and reject it. Pray that our hearts would have been soft to what needed to be heard today. I pray equally that we wouldn't hear it and forget about it. May we be aware of those within our body that need help and need love. May we be aware of the areas of compromise in our hearts. Lord, may we be people who are guided by the implanted world, uh, implanted word and not the, the world around us. Why don't we just take a moment while we're praying and just in our hearts consider the things we need to do, things we need to stop doing. Father, may we not forget the things that you have by your Holy Spirit placed upon our hearts through the teaching of your word. and May we be equipped by them and may we go out and do them, doing the works of ministry that you've gifted us for, that we together corporately might grow to be more like your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.